This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Is Wakanda Forever edition. It's Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. On today's show, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, continues the story of Black Panther, but without the late and very, very great Chadwick Boseman. How does a franchise soldier on without its star? We will discuss. And then the documentary Selena Gomez, My Mind and Me, takes us pretty deep into the life of a young woman breaking under the strains of stardom. Courageously not breaking is maybe the better way to put it, actually. That's what I wish I'd written. Um, It's on Apple TV+. Plus. We will discuss that, too. And finally... Congress has its very first Gen Zer, and young people may well have decided this past election. We discuss a rising political consciousness and just maybe a new swing constituency. To that end, joining me today is uh, what's your generational uh, affiliation right now, Nadira? Have you switched uh, to your registration? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm technically a zillennial, yeah. which uh, is something that I think is the only thing that really encompasses how I feel, which is caught in between the sort of millennial oeuvre and the Gen Z energy. Oh, I love it. I'm a cusper, too. I'm exactly between a boomer and a Gen X. So, um, But anyway, of course, you're Nadira Goff, a slate uh, culture writer, and congratulations on the gig and the title. It's richly, richly deserved. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. I'm excited by these topics. And uh, I don't know what you think of Wakanda Forever. And I'm very eager to find out what both of you uh, thought of it. So shall we dig in? Shall we make a show? Let's go. Brilliant. Let's okay. do it. Uh, excellent. Black Panther was a path-breaking success in uh, every respect. But at its heart was... It's heart, the pathos, the humanity, the beautifully modulated charisma of its star, Chadwick Boseman. He died in 2020 from colon cancer. Now comes the sequel, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, a movie whose hero is arguably a society, Wakanda, the Afrofuturist paradise, one substantially governed by women and devoted to preserving its own autonomy and its supply of a rare but strategically valuable substance, mineral, what would you call it? It's almost like a superpower lending. Yeah, it's like an outer space meteor (laughs) element. I don't know. Yeah, that would-be colonial powers would love to get their dirty mitts on. Once again, the film is directed by Ryan Coogler. It stars Letitia Wright, Angela Bassett, and Tinak Huerta as Namor, an undersea leader who may or may not be the movie's supervillain. In this clip, Namor sneaks into Wakanda for the first time, and he's greeted with a, I would not call it a warm welcome, from Ramonda, the queen of Wakanda, played marvelously by Angela Bassett. Let's, uh, let's listen to the clip. Stop! Right there! Who are you? And how did you get in here? This place is amazing. The air is pristine. And the water. My mother told stories about a place like this. A protected land with people that never have to leave. That never have to change who they were. What reason do you have to reveal your secret to the world? I am not a woman who enjoys repeating herself. Who... Are you? I have many names. My people call me Ahkukunkan. But my enemies call me Namor. 
Oh my, Dana. Um, I announced my curiosity about what you felt about this movie because I'm not sure I know how I felt about this movie. It was such a mixture of admiration, awe, geographical and mythological confusions, and um, I felt as though I was in search of something. And maybe you'll tell me what I missed. Um, what did you think of this film? I mean, let me start with a disclaimer that every time I talk about a Marvel movie or write about a Marvel movie, there's a part of me that feels like this is not my thing to write about and somebody's going to object to what I say, whether they're because I don't know the back mythology enough or because I like the movie too much or not enough. And then when it comes to the Black Panther franchise, it's further complicated by the fact that I'm a white person commenting on this you know, film that is this sort of Afrofuturist fantasy. But given all of those caveats, I liked this film a lot more than I thought I would and had a much more um, emotional and uh, and spiritual, I almost want to say, engagement with it than I expected to. And I think that is in part because of the the absence at its center, you know, yeah. I mean, because Ryan Coogler is is really trying to wrestle, I feel like, on film with the uh, with the real life loss of Chadwick Boseman. So that ends up getting layered into the movie in this in this way that made it unexpectedly moving. And the fact that he doesn't replace the Black Panther, not only does he not recast that part, I mean, that was something that could have been done, but that Coogler said from the beginning he was not going to do. It just mm-hmm. simply put another, you know, man in the place of the Black Panther. Instead, what he does is creates, as you said, this um, this very uh, matrilineal society. Um, it's it's entirely ruled by women in this in this version, um, and with the absence of the former hero at its center, and that doesn't always rhyme perfectly or make perfect sense with the requisite Marvel movie action scenes. And as I struggle with in my review, I don't think this movie balances those two. Tones isn't even the word. Those two genres completely mm. successfully. You know, this very interior drama about female mourning and this giant spectacle of, you know, warring mythological peoples. I don't think that those things make total sense together on screen. And as always happens when a, a really um, auteur kind of director goes into Marvel land, I feel like Kugler is to some degree constrained by those limitations. But given all of that, I felt real awe in this movie, in many of the underwater scenes, um, in, you know, a, a lot of the the interplay among the remaining grieving survivors in Wakanda. And yeah, if you if, if this is a world that, that intrigued you the first time and that you cared about, I would say, go back and you will find something there. Mm-hmm. Right. So, dear, obviously, that there's this heartbreaking absence at the center of this film and the film I agree with Dana. It honors that, right? The loss of Chadwick Boseman. Surrounding it are a lot of things that were at play in the first one. It's incredible that Marvel, owned by Disney, can make a movie that really legitimately feels like a parable about the global south versus the global north. It's a post-colonial film. And I I just don't, don't know that I'm reading that into it, right? No, not at all. I think one of the things that I really loved about the first Black Panther was its ability to create a villain that is sympathetic, which Mm. (laughs) I did write about this for Slate. But I do think that (laughs) Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger was sympathetic, not only because he had some really interesting sort of radical politics, but also because he's very attractive. Hmm. I don't think that that (laughs) is quite different this time around. And I really enjoy that. I think one of the successes of the Black Panther franchise is bringing these sort of post-colonial tales to this mainstream form and really having the audience grapple with, well, 
what does it mean to be a villain? What does it mean to be a hero? What does it mean to be an anti-hero even? And to really grapple with ourselves as an audience belonging to most often or most likely, especially the people who are writing about them as critics, these nations that have committed these horrific crimes or have a history of colonialization and slavery. And I really love that the film still grapples with those things. I really enjoyed Namor as the villain, as the antihero, I would say. Again, not just because he's attractive, which he is, (laughs) but I do think that ultimately even the sort of Namor post-colonial story was bogged down by a whole bunch of just really frustrating MCU world building (laughs) that I just didn't see as totally necessary and found as kind of annoying, especially given that the film could have been a really, really tight story, but ended up being almost three hours long, which I just felt was kind of unnecessary. It is exactly that, right, Dan? It's sprawling. Funnily enough, what I found missing in this was as much um, the Killmonger character and Michael B. Jordan's like extraordinary performance as him in the first one, which to me, I thought I was watching in the first one an equally powerful racial parable about different possible ideals of black masculinity as represented by these two astonishing actors. And it brought me over the course of its rather epic sweep to a freaking meaningful Marvel fistfight at the end. As a friend of mine brilliantly said, you know, if the entire existence of the universe is at stake, are fistfights really the way they're going to get that's going to get settled? You know, it's like these (laughs) huge stakes and then it's two guys beating the crap out of each other and you're like, I don't know. But in that movie, it sort of worked because I felt like the stakes weren't the existence of the universe. It was the existence of this black utopia, right? autonomous black utopia and the nature of it and what counts as black utopia and what counts as black masculinity. Yeah, and there's a mini- meaningful ideological dispute yeah. between the fist-fighting guys. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I was like, I'm all in, right? So I felt that absence very powerfully. At the same time, there's an ambiguity in its place, which is, is Namor going to, and it's his dilemma, and it's a real dilemma. You're also a quote-unquote racial other that the American empire and other colonial empires wish to exploit and have exploited. And um, what is your relationship to defensive violence going to be? I'm telling you that is in this movie. It saturates it. And I feel like it works as a question and that you're thrusting on a mass global audience. That kind of question to me is worthy of enormous amounts of respect. I don't know how it works as a plot device. And that's where I was saddened. Yeah, I do think it's really, really interesting. And I think that that question is the right one, because something that I always think about, especially when it comes to the Black Panther films and the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole, is that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is at its heart like Western imperialist military propaganda. And I say this as someone who really, really loves the Marvel Cinematic Universe and doesn't love Western imperialist (laughs) military propaganda. Um, I've watched almost every Marvel entity except for, I think, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which Mm. is quite a lot of time of my life, I do have to say. And so I think them posing these questions in Black Panther, in both of these films, is really, really interesting. But I do think that when it has to play the Marvel game, it ultimately ends up losing, right? It ultimately sort of knocks that question mark 
off the end of the question and kind of just leaves the sentiment there. And so I would really love for this film in particular, Wakanda Forever, to be able to sort of have the freedom that the first one had to really, really sort of go there. I mean, even though it doesn't necessarily hold up to all of its ideals in the first one, in the first one, by the end, they end up still siding with the countries that they shided throughout the entire film for all of the horrible acts that they had done beforehand, which, of course, is the only way I guess it could end. But even though it didn't necessarily circle back on that promise, it still made a much more concerted effort to sort of explore that question than this film did. And this film was just dealing with too much. But I really, really like that it tried. And I love, as both of you were saying earlier, it's sort of transitioned from, I mean, I call the first one Daddy Issues 101. (laughs) Um, It is very much steeped in the issues of fatherhood and what it means to be a man in masculinity, as you were saying. But what I loved and what Dana was saying earlier is that this film really does kind of just put all that aside and focus on the only people who can maybe get us out of this mess of tremendous grief of this sort of question of a post-colonial state and what we're going to do about that and the actual violence, which is women, right? Mm -hmm. And I really, really wanted that to go even further than it did. But I love the sort of steps it was taking in that direction. Yeah, I mean, if you think about what this movie could have been, I I feel tremendous relief that I didn't walk out of it thinking, wow, the first Black Panther tried to do so much and, you know, was so kind of innovative within that genre and was tried to make a political statement that was so much more contemporary. And look at it now, just sunk into this sad fan service, you know, I mean, something really cynical. It did not feel like a cash grab in that way to me at all. That said, and I feel this way about any director of of Ryan Coogler's level of talent, I hope that he gets out of the Marvel Universe Mm -hmm. at some Mm -hmm. point. And when I read that his next project, he does know what his next directing project is so it could be anything but he is you know producing various marvel series he's going to be producing a disney plus series called Ironheart that's about one of the characters in this movie who is an obvious just plant you know to, to launch yeah. a new franchise um this character who whose superhero um, form is called Ironheart, and that's all great i mean i want ryan kluger to cash some good paychecks so that he can do the things he wants to do but you know, this is the man who made Fruitvale Station, who made Creed. I mean, sure. he he has yeah. other things to do with his one wild and precious life than keep on <laughs> doing Marvel brand service. So, I mean, I at once feel hopeful about this movie and cynical about it. And in general, if we were talking about Marvel in a more global way, I would say I wish that it didn't have the chokehold on the culture that it did and with, that we were having these kinds of discussions about other kinds of movies. Mm. Yeah, I mean, with all of that being said, there are many parts of this movie that I definitely did enjoy. First and foremost being Angela Bassett. I think that her performance as Queen Ramonda is astounding, is staggering, and I expect nothing less of my impeccable armed queen, Angela Bassett. I love her so much. But there's so many other great parts of this movie to me. I think Denai Guerrera as a Koye was given so much more to do in this movie. And I really appreciated seeing her sort of get to have this emotional breath that I know that she's capable of. I really enjoyed the sort of um, just offhanded one-liner, absolute hilarious hits from Winston Duke, who played M'Baku, you know, all of his moments where he was just like sarcastically eating a carrot you know all of these things to here me here are what makes steals every single <laughs> yes. scene he in. steals every scene and i think those performances are performances that make these movies and performances that maybe only great directors can sort of get out of these marvel movies and out of these sort of machine films again machine films that i love very much and so i you know i don't necessarily want just 
mediocre directors to direct all of these movies. I do think that sometimes they can rise to the occasion, the movies being. And so, you know, it's it's nice to see all these auteur directors at the helm. But at the same time, you know, it's sort of disappointing that they sort of have to grapple with this, the machine and the system of the MCU as a whole. With that, I can completely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here, here. All right. Well, I have to say... I think what unites our three topics this week is a degree of optimism we haven't dared allow ourselves for years now for all the obvious reasons. But And you have to be, you can't be credulous, but you're sort of allowed to be a little optimistic. And I felt like this was one of them. I mean, yes, there's this gigantic tentacular machine devoted to extracting mammoth amounts maximum amounts of profits for shareholders known as disney and and it's you know flagship treasury of ip marvel at the same time there is a degree of creative and moral autonomy to this series that is maybe their most successful one it's certainly among them and it's just remarkable how many times you discover that there's like a heart and a conscience at the heart of it that i I do think it's bypassed my tendency to cynicism in ways that surprise me. So here, here, I guess that that'll be my bottom line. All right. The movie is uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. It's uh, only in theaters now, too. It's also nice to know that many people are still willing to go see something. Yeah, it crushed the box office over the week. Yeah, for sure. All right. Check it out and uh, let's move on. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically in the program where we discuss business. Dana, what um, what do you have? Steve, there is but one item of business, and that is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment at the end of the show. This week, we are inspired by a question our producer threw out to us, inspired by Steve's recent endorsement of the novel Transit of Venus by Shirley Hazard, which he said he struggled to get into. He was initially annoyed by. He almost put the book down. And then he was sort of he sort of discovered the code and started to uh, appreciate its use of language and ended up really loving the book. So with that in mind, we thought we would talk about other works of art that we struggled to get into or get through at first, but ultimately ended up enjoying. There are a lot of reasons you might struggle with a book or a movie or a TV show. Maybe it's boring. Maybe it's dense. Maybe it feels too familiar to you. But sometimes it's worth sticking with it and getting over the hump to the point where you enjoy it. Or maybe sometimes it's worth throwing it aside. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing us discuss that aspect of encountering new cultural works at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, as always, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, back to the show. All right. Well, Selena Gomez has been a star since she danced and sang next to Barney at the age of seven. In the time since, she's been a star of a Disney show, a pop star, a movie star, lately star of a great cooking show on HBO, and a really nicely delivered Hulu mystery holding her own next to comedy greats uh, Martin Short and um, Steve Martin. And yet, will it shock you? Stardom kind of sucks. Gomez is a real human being. She suffers from lupus, has been diagnosed uh, uh, with bipolar disorder. And as the new Apple TV Plus doc, Selena Gomez, My Mind and Me, shows us, here is a young woman, an intelligent young woman, coming into her own in a straitjacket called Fame. In the clip, you'll hear Selena herself discussing her early career, starting with uh, the Barney gig. I was seven years old when I got my first job. I was proud because I got to go escape my life and be in Barneyland and just play and sing. I don't know, I just fell in love with these escape things. Then I never stopped. I just kept going. And then when I hit around 11 and I moved to Los Angeles, I just wanted to work. 
I loved my job. But eventually, after doing this for so long, I started to feel vain. It made me feel lonely somehow. And then when I started touring, it just got worse. After I got out of the last treatment center, I knew what made me happy was connection. Mm, all right, Nadira, let me start with you. Something I didn't mention about the doc that I think people should know is its director is Alex Kashishian, who is best known, I think, still for having directed the Madonna Truth or Dare documentary, which was a not dissimilar project, a look in 91 sort of maybe behind the scenes, maybe candid, uh, at a huge pop diva. What'd you make of this one? So I've been following Selena as a big fan of hers for her entire career, which is why I feel as though we are friends and which is (laughs) why I have a sort of parasocial relationship towards her and feel as though I can use just her first name. And I think a part of that is sort of the brand she builds, which as this film shows is, I don't know, some sort of extension of who she actually is, right? You know, she has this reputation as the child star who may have suffered some bad things, but is still ultimately a good person. She's Mm -hmm. warm. She's open. She's accepting. She does a lot of philanthropy. And even though she's made some slight missteps, you know, she was in that 2019 Woody Allen film with Timothy Chalamet and Al Fanning, A Rainy Day in New York. She produced 13 Reasons Why, which she claims doesn't sort of uh, make suicide into a I don't know, a spectacle, but I, I'm not the biggest fan of that show. Even though she's misstepped a few times, she's still known as this like Disney good girl or someone who's mm-hmm. made it out relatively okay. But I think this movie is showing that she wasn't relatively okay, was she? And, and not even remotely for most parts of the career that I've been following. But I think one of the things that I'm hesitant about with this documentary, I mean, first of all, I'm hesitant about celebrity documentaries as a whole, as a genre, there's a part of them that always feels some layer of fabricated to me as if it's still trying to sell me something. Mm-hmm. And I think that this documentary kind of breaks that down a little bit, but not entirely. And two of the criticisms that I have, I mean, we can get into them. I think there, there's a lot to talk about here. But one of them is that I think it's entirely too vague. You know, I didn't even realize until reading about all of her mental health struggles after I saw the documentary that her psychosis was way more severe than the documentary sort of lets on or gets into. And also it doesn't showcase any of the things that I love about Selena's career now. I am someone who really, really loves Selena as an actress. I think since her Disney days, she's kind of wound down the acting thing and is getting more into her music, which I'm also a fan of. But from the mid 2010s to now, she's done a lot of astounding things. She was really great in Rudderless with Billy Crudup and uh, the late great Anton Yelkin. She had a short cameo in The Big Short. She was in The Fundamentals of Caring with one of my all-time favorites, Paul Rudd. She was in Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die. And now, you know, she's in Only Murders in the Building, which I think is one of my favorite shows that's sort of being put on right now. And the documentary doesn't get into any of that. Any parts of her career that are acting-based, any parts of her career that she might even feel good about. And so I don't really know... To that point, it just seems fabricated in a sort of way, even though I really admire what it's trying to do. All right. I think um, Dana Nadira picks up on something really you know, kind of key to any of these types of projects. Like we've seen similar things about Taylor Swift, Beyonce, I don't know. But, um, you know, are we watching something that's just a careful extension of the existing brand with a kind of fakey peekaboo to it that actually is 
part of the highly controlled star image and commodification of this person? Or are we actually seeing something that looks genuinely beyond that into, into an actual human being? And we're, we're getting something like the candid essence of um, a person. And I'm just curious what you made of this documentary and where you kind of came out on that, that question of what we're seeing and, and maybe why we're seeing it. Yeah, I mean, Nadir, you said so many of the things that I was planning yeah, to say. <laughs> that now, I'm, sorry. I'm digging down to the bottom of the barrel. But I mean, I have a similar, not allergy, but a resistance to these kind of self-produced pop star documentaries. It's, but they're not all the same. You know, this does not go as far down the road of being a complete puff piece in which you really cannot glimpse past that person's kind of PR scrim as, for example, the Beyonce documentary you mentioned exactly, yeah. or the Taylor Swift one. Yeah. This is maybe a little bit more like the Billie Eilish documentary, mm-hmm. which I can't remember if we discussed. Mm-hmm. The world's a little blurry. I think we did, yeah. Which, which I think is is quite good, but is also a self produced pop star documentary that's you know obscuring the edges of the picture a little bit using the vignette filter, you know, but <laughs> but using it pretty effectively. I think this plus the Billie Eilish documentary are examples of you know documentaries that give you a little bit more of a sense of the person's struggle behind the scenes, even if that is being you know presented and tailored in a certain way, you know, to enhance their their brand. Um, Certainly, Selena Gomez comes across as as an authentic person. You know, she herself comes off as an authentic person, but there's a a huge part of her life that isn't represented, not just, as you say, Nadira, all the great acting she's done recently, which actually would have enhanced her brand, if that's what the documentary is about, but things about her family. And this could be because the family didn't want to participate as much in the documentary. They do very briefly talk to her mother, but, you know, she grew up with a single mother who was a teenage mother. She talks very briefly about that. But that I would I would have liked to know so much more about her family background. There's a moment that her mother, who is very briefly interviewed on camera, talks about her daughter's breakdown in the moment that she found out that she was, you know, in a mental hospital because she read about it on TMZ, which is horrific. Um, but mm-hmm. why was she not in touch with her mother at that point? Later on, she says, you know, I love my mother. She's my everything. And they show her with her family. She seems to get along with them. But there's these vague references mm. to it seems like a period where she wasn't in contact with her family. So why? And when was that period? Um, you know, there's a brief sort of off-screen mention that she had alcohol or drug problems, or at least that there were headlines about that. Is that that true? I don't know. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really talk about it. And I mean, just in very concrete terms, there's no timeline to this documentary, which drove me crazy because I literally couldn't tell how old she was and what year things were happening. That's a very in. Good point. The yeah. fact is that this yeah. documentary was begun, and this is a fascinating story behind it, was begun in 2016 um, as a kind of tour documentary. And unexpectedly, she had this breakdown on that tour and the tour ended. So the documentary went on hold for several years and then eventually in talks with the director, Alex Kashishian, Selena Gomez decided to go through with it and said, you know, let's show, you know, all the warts and all. I don't think they show every wart, but she decided to go ahead and turn it into a different kind of documentary. So that's all very interesting. But the documentary itself doesn't tell that story. So there's this moment when masks start to appear and you realize, oh, now we're in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I, I needed some signposting to kind of understand more concretely where we were and what was happening. In yeah, life. no, I'm with you on that. I mean, as someone who's inclined to hate people who love their life and love people who hate their life, I fell for this person over the course of the doc, right? Like I, it got, I don't think I was being suckered, right? I, oh I, yeah, she's incredibly yeah. winning, you know, and not because she's putting on a good face for the camera, but because she she really is vulnerable. Right. And I do and, really love her. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I loved her when my kids loved her, right? Which wasn't always true. My kids would, when they were really small, would admire some Disney stars or the like. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, well, you're going to outgrow that. And I always thought she was dif- distinct and 
genuinely special. And Nadira, you're absolutely right. Like how we are not, I mean, maybe it's a rights issue, who knows, but the, we're not seeing clips from some of her perform recent acting performances seems like a minor crime. It's like, come on, she's doing great work as an adult actress right now. Um, and, um, what I do think the documentary depicts probably about as well as you could expect it to is we're talking about a person who's mastered the culture of, let's just call it like non-personhood, right? Like she's, and she's discovering, and it's kind of enough of it's on camera. She's discovering at the age of 27, no, 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 I'm, I'm a person, right? Like, I th- and and that personhood is somewhat inimical to Selena Inc. And by non-personhood, I'm not putting anyone down. It's just that she understands the nature of having given herself over to self-commodification, even though it paid off mega. That that comes at a cost that you are acutely aware of as you begin to live in the shadow of 30. And you're, by its nature, completely oblivious to when you're seven or 14, maybe, or 21 or whenever it is. And it's more than just paparazzi. What I found interesting was the relationship with Raquel, the blonde friend, (laughs) who's like, is she a friend or a handler? I don't think that there is much of a distinction anymore for Selena, someone like Selena Gomez, which is heartbreaking. And that secondly, she's surrounded by enablers who are pretend friends whose job it is to keep the princess intact for another performance because she's Nadira, a lot of people's professional raison d'etre, right? Like she's a cash cow to them. And it's, there is a kind of world of cynicism around her. But the documentary doesn't seem fully aware of that and in control of that. I wouldn't say. I think Raquel, her friend, is one of the producers of it. I feel like this is when I talked about where are her, where is her family and what's her relationship to her family. The handlers are part of that. It sort of seems like her main social circle are these people who are more or less paid to prop her up and get her on stage to do her shows. Right. Uh, And and yet she talks about having this deep connection with her family, but why isn't she calling her mom when she's breaking down? I mean, this isn't me blaming Selena for not calling her mom. I just want to understand what, what the social fabric of her world is like. Yeah, and it seems like the narrative that the documentary, whether it intends to or not, is kind of pushing is that is that in order to be in Selena's orbit, given that she's grappling with this bipolar disorder and her lupus and all the really difficult things that she's dealing with, that everyone sort of kind of has to double as both, right? Handler and mom, handler and manager, handler and friend. And I'm just not sure mm-hmm. that that's true. Like I'm just yeah. not sure that that's something that I came away from the documentary feeling good about. In fact, it actually did make me still feel concerned about her. But one of the things that I do want to commend the documentary for are the moments that show her absolutely breaking down and being really curt and rude to the people who, whatever their intentions, are, you know, trying to do right by her, I guess. Um, And I think it does show a more human portrait of her than we are often afforded. But it left me with a lot of questions. Yeah. Mm, Okay. We have to wrap it, Nadira, as our resident Selenologist. Mm -hmm. Favorite Selena song? Oh, gosh. Don't choke here, Nadira. (laughs) I won't. I do think... Uh, of her more recent work um, she has a song I think it's called like Cut Me Off or something like that that's really great 
How could I confuse that shit for love? So I gotta get you out my head now. I just cut you off. I mean, I think her 2020 album Rare as a whole is really fun. You know, she's an adult now. She's talking about how she wants a boyfriend, but boys suck, and how she's about to cut all of her relationships off, and that's great. I, as a Disney Channel kid, am a really, really big fan of all of her early albums with Selena Gomez and The Scene. Mm. And so any song from any of those, especially if it's a single from her first three albums, they will be childish. They will be kind of silly. But they are indeed bangers. And I think the world should know that. And I want you to know, baby. All right, we have Pandora's box open now. We got to keep it. I know we have to go, but favorite acting performance in a feature film, not so. In other words, not Murders in the Building. Go. Ooh, um, give me one. I now. really enjoyed her in The Fundamentals of Caring with Paul Ooh. Rudd. I really, really did. I think the movie itself is not perfect, but I just love the idea of her and Paul Rudd and Craig Roberts being in a car together and making jokes. All right, I got to stream that. I got to check that out. Uh, All right, well, the new doc is Selena Gomez, My Mind and Me. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. I think we're three thumbs up on both Selena, the person, Selena, the talent, and uh, and the doc. So check it out. All right, moving on. All right, well, uh, according to various accounts on the internet, he tweets, he tweets about One Direction, Harry Styles, Ariana Grande. Uh, He tweets about Nicki Minaj, Beyonce, Taylor Swift. He is also... The first Gen Z member of Congress. His name is Maxwell Alejandro Frost. And why don't we listen to a clip of him talking to CNN last week? When people ask me what does Gen Z care about, I think we all really care about the same issues. But Generation Z is seeing them through a different lens, right? Through the life we've been through. I think about my timeline growing up seeing Occupy Wall Street, learning about Trayvon Martin, who was murdered just 30 minutes north of me, Parkland, March for Our Lives. These are the moments that are uh, defining for our generation. And I think I'm taking that perspective to Congress and the urgency that these issues really deserve. All right, Nadir, I'm going to guess that this maybe resonates with you. I will say... It has been an ongoing theme of the show, in a way, how the social contract has been broken for your generation. And it was only a matter of time, one would think, until that generation organized a, around a political consciousness of that um, ripoff job, effectively. Um, what do you make of his election and the fact that young people may really well have played difference maker in, um, in the congressional elections? To me, it's really, really fascinating and interesting. I think Frost says a lot of it in the clip there that's absolutely accurate. I mean, he refers to our generation as the mass shooting generation. Mm -hmm. And I think as dire and heartbreaking as it is, I think it's absolutely true. You know, he ran on a platform that showed solidarity for codifying Roe v. Wade, Medicare for all, demilitarizing the police, um, expunging all marijuana convictions, and again, gun control, as he mentioned, with March for Our Lives, in addition to so many other really, really core causes for younger generations and younger people now. And I think that the urgency that he's talking about is something that is probably the main tool that young voters and young people have now and the main thing that they hope to see in return, but is the one thing that I'm unsure 
we'll ever actually get. You know, mm-hmm. I think that we have a lot of energy um, and we feel urgent. You know, we're a generation that is becoming really, really more accustomed to protesting and all of the forms that that looks like and all of the methods that that takes. And so I think ur- urgency is the way we operate. And I really, really like the idea of an urgent sort of call for all of these things being injected into our system of politics now. But I, I, I wonder about the sort of legitimacy of it all and about the longevity of this really, really energetic cause and this uh, energetic way of rising to these problems. Mm, Dana, it, you know, we, we have daughters around the same age and it's just incredible to go through. Nadira started doing it, as did Frost in the clip. It's the litany of what public life has been for them. You couldn't blame young people if they had to, begun to tune out politics and and started to give up on, on public life. Cynicism would be a natural response to it. Thank God they haven't, right? God, I mean, if they can keep up this level of energy for even, you yeah. know, half a generation, yeah. it will yeah. be an incredible step forward for, for American politics. When I was reading a little bit about his background, Frost's background, I was just shocked at how quickly he has ascended to the point of being able to be elected to Congress. Like, do you guys remember after the Uvalde shooting earlier this year, there was this moment that Ron DeSantis was doing some kind of public event and he was heckled. He was, Mm -hmm. you know, shouted Mm -hmm. out by a protester who was dragged out. That was Maxwell Alejandro Frost. You know, I guess he had already at that point thought about starting to run for Congress. Maybe he'd started his campaign. But, you know, to most people, he was just a guy on the news who was shouting down Ron DeSantis in a press conference. And that kind of immediacy, you know, that that wasn't some formative (laughs) moment that years later led to him becoming a congressman. But a few months later, right, in the same year, he becomes a congressman. was just it was really exciting. It makes it gives a real sense of possibility. Also, I think looking a little into his background and seeing how close he had been to incidents of gun violence. Apparently, he survived a kind of violent shooting event in 2016. That was also the year of the Orlando nightclub shooting, right? So when he's from Orlando, Mm -hmm. that he would have been a teenager at the time. So it just... It, it made me think about those seeds being planted in the brains of millions and millions of now kids, you know, who are just about to to reach that that cusp age to be elected to Congress. Yeah, I mean, this this country so it does nobody needs me to say right, but but it is still worth reiterating that this country suffers from this grotesque asymmetry at the heart of its politics, which is that demographically we're increasingly diverse. The um, ideology, if it's if you could even call it that, of young people is so uh, pluralistic in some sense. It's so open to ways of being in the world uh, and multiple kinds of identities and origins that when I was growing up were treated with either silence or contempt by mainstream culture. And yet, thanks to this asymmetry, our politics is dominated by old white voters because they vote in such preposterously huge numbers relative to their overall population. Their influence is so outsized. And we get a politics that reflects it. And as with so many things in American political life, it enters a vicious cycle. And of course, young people begin to tune it out. They think of it as non-responsive. The Republican Party is dying to send that message over and over again, create this general ambiance of unresponsiveness to the needs uh, or priorities of young people. And 
we're at this cusp moment, Nadira, where we have enough of a functioning electoral, democratic electoral system left that perhaps we can begin to reverse the vicious cycle. But it's right at that moment where what's on what's on the agenda now is literally democracy itself, right? It's like quite, I mean, they the Republican Party reads those demographic numbers and they understand their fate if they don't counteract them with the minoritarian politics, right? And, uh, and voter suppression, right? Tactics of suppression. And um, so, Nadir, this is a bleak picture. Do you think it's unfair of people of my age group to be placing so many hopes on the very people all along we've shafted? Gosh, uh, you know, that's a really hard question yeah. to answer because I, I I don't know anything else. I'm I'm 26 and this is, you yeah. know, the sort of only life I've lived. But I do Why think... Why aren't you in Congress, Nadira? <laughs> Slacker? <laughs> that is a good question. You know what, Dana? I'm going to prepare my, <laughs> my platform right now. Um, I think that I really identify with what Steve, what you were saying earlier, with democracy being on the line as a whole. You know, it's it's not just the sort of weight that's being put on my generation mm-hmm. and, you know, younger generations that will come and have come and are coming after me. It's also, it's just where we are now. You know, I think I read this one stat that was in a list of a whole bunch of stats that was saying that youth were the most likely to say that their views of President Biden played no role in their 2022 midterm vote. It's not mm-hmm. just the state of, you know, the GOP. It's sure. it's the state of American politics as a whole. And I think that what we are sort of energized by and what motivates us are the actual causes, right? And there are, as you mentioned, a lot of them that we have to grapple with. But I think it's just something that we do. It's something that like we know how to take in a lot of information and a lot of sensory stuff, partially because we grew up with the Internet and all these things. And so I think communication in that way is key. And having someone in Congress, you know, who can tweet, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. who can yeah. use emojis properly, who can do all of these things that are really, really strong bat signals to us, I think is actually way more important than people might be giving it credit for. You know, the it's that sort of community that we have that's unified by this like differing idea of what's right. And I, and I find that to be really interesting and really motivating, but also I'm wondering a, how long that will last and B, what are we actually wrong about now? that mm-hmm. You know, we'll find out or won't find out for the next few decades, but I'm, I'm really, really proud of us for trying and for continuing to show up. I almost feel bad raining on this parade with anything negative. But one thing I would like to say about the whole conversation about, you know, the first Gen Z member of Congress being elected is that I really do think that these generational labels and over investing in what they mean is (laughs) is destructive to the public conversation. And I kept reading other things that were exciting about Frost that had nothing to do with his age. He's the first Afro-Cuban member of of Congress, just other categories that are that are first that no one is talking about. And then reading facts like Madison Cawthorn, (laughs) everybody's favorite, you know, representative of GOP youth in Congress was elected when he was 25. It just so happened 
happens that that was two years ago, so he's not officially Gen Z. And that made me just think about the artificiality of those distinctions. And, you know, even the idea, for example, that now that we have somebody who's 25, we have someone who can tweet in Congress. I mean, AOC opened up huge, you know, she obviously brought in sort of that language for the first time and and being really good at social media in the way that she is, is something that I think, and I think she was in her late 20s, right, when she was elected to Congress. So it is great that this young man was... <laughs> I mean, I suppose that you could micro divide and find something that's different yeah. about the presentational style of a 25 year old versus a 28 mm-hmm. year old. But right. in general, I find those divisions, unless you're talking about an actual sociological fact like the baby boom happening after World War II, to right. be to be annoying buzzwords. And I always have to say that that itself has become my annoying buzzword right. on the Gabfest. But that is how I feel about those distinctions. Right. For sure. I, yeah. I, I do just want to say very, very quickly, like I I tend to agree and disagree. I kind of go back and forth on it, especially as someone who's in like, you know, on the cusp between millennial and Gen Z. I think sometimes too much energy is being put forward to it. I do think it actually shows some merit. There is a sort of quintessential way that we communicate with each other that's really hard to describe. But absolutely, my favorite tidbit about Maxwell Frost that I learned is that he's a gig worker. You know, he used yes. to be an Uber driver. He was I think driving that that's, an Uber. I love it. I think it. That that's fascinating yeah. and way more interesting to me than his age, you know? Yeah. I, I, no, 100% I'm with you on that. In the same way that AOC being a bartender, right? Right, I, exactly. I, right. Very inspiring. I mean, Very quickly on social media, I mean, thank God, right? Because the one thing I think you have to give to Trump is that as grotesque as he is, he has this horrible, like, basically, he can lay his finger directly on the nerves of Id Force America with a tweet, um, which is horrific. But you need people who are deft at social media now. But Dana, we'll just have to pick that fight another day. I think generations are, they're real enough, right? Like, like they're, they're, they're somewhere in between uh, sociolog- empirical sociological fact and fairy tale, right? There's a historical narrative that can be woven that makes it important, narratively important to understand why an age cohort's experience was unique. And I agree that that narrative can be threadbare and scarcely credible and all about zeitgeist tussling. But I also think it can be made historically real in the sense that, you know, the Renaissance isn't real. They didn't think of it as the Renaissance. Periodization isn't real. There are heuristic conveniences that allow us, I think, to see more of the real in some sense. So anyway, that's my friggin' hobby horse. You got on yours, I got on mine, and now we're gonna ride <laughs> off into the sunset of this segment. You look like you don't you you look like you wanna joust. <laughs> I'm creating a spreadsheet of differences in my mind between the Renaissance and like the word zillennial, but okay, let's move on. <laughs> don't worry, I'll put this on my platform when oh my I God. eventually run for Congress. <laughs> I love that it doesn't take the presence of Julia Turner to Totally pinprick my trial <laughs> balloon and my sense of self on this show. Okay, anyway, moving on. Uh, we'll keep our close eye on the Zillennials. All right, well, now is the moment on our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what did you bring us? 
Well, as long as we had a segment talking about a documentary about a celebrity made for TV that is arguably a puff piece but still worth watching, I will recommend another movie that falls into that exact same category, which is Spielberg, a 2017 documentary about Steven Spielberg that I happened to watch on HBO over the last few days because I was reviewing his new movie, The Fablemans, which is autobiographical or semi-autobiographical, and um, it has a lot of stuff about his childhood. So naturally, I went back to try to figure out what his actual childhood was like, and lo and behold, this uh, documentary about Spielberg is really good. I mean, it is true that it is, you know, it's it's not like an expose. <laughs> there may be bad things about Steven Spielberg that are not revealed by this documentary, but he genuinely seems to be quite a nice man. He's certainly very articulate and eloquent about mm-hmm. what it is to be a film director. And best of all, there's a lot of great talking heads that they bring in to talk about him. Everybody from Coppola to Kate Blanchett to mm. A.O. <laughs> Scott from The Times, just tons wow. of other directors and film scholars. And um, Tom Hanks comes and talks about what it's like to work with him. And it's a fairly standard chronological, you know, it tells you the story of the making of Jaws. It's got some great back, backstage footage of, you know, his movies being made on set. And some fascinating stuff about his childhood, which I won't spoil, because if you see The Fablemans, you'll be kind of amazed at his childhood story. But anyway, um, I know that some people have their problems with Spielberg as the the master manipulator that he is, but he is unquestionably one of the most important forces in American cinema. And if you want to learn a bit more about him, Spielberg is streaming on HBO Max. Yeah. um, Here, here. That's amazing. And by the way, I can't wait to talk about The Fablemans. I hope we do. Oh, yeah, Um, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Nadira, what what do you have? I have two endorsements, if you will indulge me. I've been meaning or waiting to endorse on the show for a really long time. It's one of my favorite segments of the show. I just love learning what you guys are into. Um, So the first one is very, very quick. Like Dana, I was inspired by the Selena Gomez documentary to uh, sort of present something that is a piece of celebrity journalism. So the 15,000 word, very, very famous profile, Frank Sinatra has a cold by Gay Talese, I think oh, is sure. one of my absolute yeah. favorite pieces of journalism ever. It's something I read again and again and again. There's a really fun version of it on Neiman's storyboard with annotations, both by uh someone who's interviewing Gay Talese and then Gay Talese responding to those questions, I think is a really, really fun way to engage with the text. But it's, I mean, if you want to talk about sort of getting a good look at really famous but complicated public figures, I think that that is one of the prime examples that we have. So that's my first one. And then my second one is Moses Sumney's concert film, Black Alacha. So I don't know how familiar either of you are with Moses Sumney, but uh, he is a queer Ghanaian-American artist from California who makes like I would describe it as ethereal, avant-garde, art, jazz, rock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's very, very good. Um, oh, yes. He, yeah, he's so good. He moved to Asheville, North Carolina in the summer of 2018 from California um, for nature and solitude to work on his second full-length project, which was a double album released in two parts in 2020 called Gray, which is all about the gray spaces in life and identity. But the lack of performing mid-pandemic pushed him to direct a sort of live conceptual concert film, which is just over an hour long on YouTube. It's filmed in North Carolina's Blue Ridge Mountains and it's called Black Alacha, which is, you know, a portmanteau between Black and Appalachia, which he released almost a year ago in December of 2021. It's this really stirring, peaceful, like ruminative piece of art that rearranges 14 songs from his two previous and only albums, the aforementioned Grey and 2017's A Romanticism. Um, and I think he just deals with themes that are really, 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 really relatable, but in just an angelic way. Like his voice is astounding. And the rearrangements of this song, the arrangements of the song um, are 
so incredible like all of the songs he has this song called me in 20 years that just never ceases to reduce me to tears hold out for more time recommend it enough. So that's Moses Sumney's Black Alacha concert film on YouTube. Ah, uh, already bookmarked it while you were talking. And this is so doubly valuable because as I was sitting there thinking, I'm going straight to Spotify. This is the first thing I'm going to listen to when I walk out of the stu- studio. And then I realized I was a huge fan of Aromanticism five years yeah. ago. And I don't know yeah. how I forgot about it, but what a work of freaking genius. And you're right. Nadira, that's exactly what I remember about them is the the witching, totally unexpected arrangements. Yeah. He's doing something musically that's you immediately love it, and yet it's totally unfamiliar. I mean, it's sort of esoteric, but not in the least bit alienating or or like stupidly Absolutely. difficult. It's like what a, I cannot wait to return to this. Thank you so much. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so my I have a kind of music related uh, endorsement as well. There. In the forthcoming Times Magazine, but it's already up on the web, there's an interview with Brian Eno. And the thing about Eno is, like, talk about one of the few people who really deserves the elder statesman label, but he's not a statue. He's not, like, a dead thing for pigeons to shit on. He's, like, he's just stayed so vital and he's such a genuine intellectual. He's so deeply engaged with questions of, like, mind and spirit and politics and existence in ways that are totally unpretentious, but quite, I don't know, sophisticated is too condescending. I mean, he's just an extraordinarily intelligent man who's continued to use his moral and creative intelligence throughout his entire life. And the interview reflects that. And I just want to read this one thing that really struck me. He's asked about, like, you know, he's worked with as a producer, you know, Brian Ferry, Roxy Music, he was in Roxy Music, of course, but also producing David Bowie, uh, produced Low, I think, uh, and I'm forgetting the other one, but uh, one of the great Berlin albums. Uh, U2, he really was instrumental in U2 becoming um, the band we know, uh, David Byrne. And so he's sort of, because he himself, you know, is not a rock star precisely. I mean, he, you know, he's been sort of rock star adjacent his whole life um, and uh, professional life. And so he's asked, well, what's charisma? What do these guys have? And he says, that's an interesting question. I, I, he says, I think charisma comes out of the sense you have that not only is someone different, but they're also confident and committed to it, obsessed even by it. We don't find uncertainty charismatic. It doesn't work for anybody very well. And in in general, the media, they don't appreciate people like that. I would like to cultivate a charisma of uncertainty. Um, and he, And then he goes on to say, yeah, yeah, a charisma of uncertainty would be my thing. In a way, David Byrne has that. And, um, I love that. I just love that idea, this oxymoron, right, in a way. But yet, yet it has a truth. It rings rings with a kind of truth to it. And um, you know, even in the Selena Gomez documentary, right, you would think defined by charisma. By the, She was a star. Your eye gravitated to her. She knew who she was in some sense. And she's started to bleed into this adult human being who has the charisma of uncertainty in that film quite often. 
Can I add a tiny Brian Eno commentary? Please, Just always. that I so happened, I never sort of sit down and listen to him, though I agree with you that he, I think of him more as almost an artist inspirer. You know, I love his- Yeah, um, for sure. His music his, is wonderful, though. Like, great. Another Green it's, World is a great rock well, let album. Let me finish. Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that while writing the other day, I was in the mood for some kind of floaty, ambient music that That's is not the, the kind of thing I yeah. usually listen to. I'm usually much more of a kind of like, you know, Baroque harp background kind of person or whatever. <laughs> um, but I thought, hey, Brian Eno does that kind of stuff right he has that famous quote about i want to make music so you don't hear the clinking of silverware awkwardly while you're eating yeah and i put on just randomly found on youtube thursday afternoon which is a whole kind of ambient long piece that he has i don't know what you would call it but i think it was written as a soundtrack initially a soundtrack for some kind of art installation or something anyway Mm. i I chose it because it sounded nice thursday afternoon with brian eno and sure enough it was just this great it did exactly the 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 fork clinking (laughs) thing that that brian eno has (laughs) talked about it made me stop hearing the noise in my own head and just be able to enter into a freer space to write in. Yeah, absolutely. Ambient stuff is just amazing. Anyway, the interview's in the November 13th uh, magazine, but it's online now. It's a sort of long-form interview with Eno called Brian Eno Reveals the Hidden Purpose of All Art. Check it out. All right, uh, Nadira, thank you so much. This was a terrific show in no small part because of your contributions. And let's do it again soon. Please, please, please. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Diana, always really fun. It was a joy. Show. Yeah, that was really nice. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. And our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. For uh, Nadira Goffman, Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello and welcome to Slot Plus, the segment of our show for Slate Plus subscribers. Today we're talking about a question proposed to us by our producer, Cameron Drews. Cameron had this idea after Steve recently endorsed Transit of Venus, the novel by, remind me who it's by, Steve? Uh, it's by Shirley Hazard. Shirley Hazard's Transit of Venus. I have not read it. It was a book that you, give me your background on it, you thought that it seemed annoying for a long time and then it won you over It was a itself. book that people I, who I really respect recommended as highly as a person can. And it, in tones that were reminiscent of your recommendation of I Capture the Castle. And I started it and was really almost powerfully put off by the style, which has sort of, I mean, I think it's published in, if I'm not mistaken, it was written in the 70s and published in 1980, but it has this kind of archaic style. And there just was, and it was annoying me. It was actively annoying me. And then this moment came where I started to see that she was recreating a very Henry Jamesian, like fan de siècle, like pre World War One world, and showing you what the kind of manners and mannerisms and habits and customs of such a world was under unusual circumstances. I mean, it's sort of about orphan sisters um, displaced to Australia from England, and it's just this like astonishing uprooting for them but it's 
the style's utterly appropriate to the to the theme of that part of their lives. And then over the course of the book, in a very unobtrusive way, I mean, it, it remains a psychologically astute and very subtle portrayal. So it has that Jamesian almost on the verge of overthinking and overwriting throughout. But you begin to see the, the, the precision and subtlety of the psychological insights that justify it. So once you kind of get the hang of it, you're like, oh, she is just into the pointillist, you know, components of a of a larger re- reality, right? But it it is utterly true to itself and it ended up being a book that I cherish as much as I captured the castle. Well, so based on this recommendation and that that trajectory that you traced, Cameron's idea, our producer's idea was that we talk about Cultural items that at first you're put off by and that, that win you over in the long run. And as we, as I was saying when we talked about doing this topic, that could mean lots of different things. I mean, that could mean returning to something after you didn't like it the first time. Or as happened with you, in the course of the read or the watch, <laughs> you start to be won over, right? And you kind of discover that it was your own resistance that says more about you than about the item that you're, you're encountering. And uh, I guess I've experienced this with a lot of things, but I'm not thinking of any right now. So I'm going to bounce over to you, Nadira. What comes to mind yeah. when you think about the... The, the transitive Venus style uh, switchover. Right. Um, a, a good number of things, surprisingly. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind, and this is a sort of uh, proclamation of love, actually, is almost anything by David Lynch. I mm. am a very, very, very big fan of David Lynch. And I find that at the onset of diving into any piece of his work, I feel utterly lost and bewildered and questioning my choices. And then by the end of the piece of work, especially after sitting in the dark for five minutes after it's over, which I feel like any Lynchian piece of thing warrants, uh, I'm just always struck by like, okay, well, maybe I really liked that. Maybe it said something really uh, fundamental or really, really um, strong. And sometimes it's a, it's a clamor to what that thing is. And it's often debated amongst people what that thing is. But I find enduring his work really, really, really well rewarding. Um, but I do find it some layer of like work, right? Like it is something that you have to either just let yourself succumb to or you have to endure (laughs) and battle through. Um, And so that was the first thing that came to mind. I think a few just more uh, recent examples, the television show Succession, Mm. I think Mm -hmm. is definitely Mm -hmm. one that when it first started, I was like, this is, why am I watching this? But there was something that was keeping me there and I ended up really, really enjoying it and for all the things that it was sort of saying about that group of people and that type of climate, um, the film Requiem for a Dream is one of my biggest ones. I don't mm. think I've seen that movie once. I don't oh, think I, I could ever. That movie. <laughs> I don't think I could ever watch that movie again. But I, I remember feeling like okay, that that it made me sick in the way that I think it wanted to make me sick. And there's something commendable about <laughs> about about something that can fall through. I agree through. that that movie makes you <laughs> sick. Attention. But I have no desire to revisit it just because. Well, then we'll get off on a whole Aronofsky thing. But I just don't like the. <laughs> I am using my technical capacities to make you feel real bad kind of side of that movie. But Succession is one I completely agree with you on. When I first watched that, I sort of thought, I I mean, we talked about this in in talking, I believe, about the last season of Succession. I still think that it gives me a slightly 
trashy feel when I watch it, but it it yeah. does what it does so incredibly well. I think the trashy feel just simply comes from the fact that you're just wallowing in these awful lives, yeah. right? You're going to right. an awful place, but it is a beautifully imagined awful place. And I certainly never thought that I would come out caring about the characters on Succession the way I do, the way that I now sit there and worry about Kendall and what's going to happen to him in the next season. <laughs> yes, I know Kendall. <laughs> when yeah. I think all of us probably when watching the pilot of that show had the same feeling of like, why would I care about these loathsome rich people, right? And it's not that now I see their tender souls or something. They're just as awful <laughs> as they ever were. But that world has been so compellingly imagined that I just I need mm-hmm. to stick with it until the end. So I'm completely with you on that. And I mean, there's there are movies like Requiem for, for a Dream that maybe if I returned to them, I would see more value in, but I just can't. You know, that kind of particularly things like that that have that body horror side that Requiem mm-hmm. for a Dream has is just sort of like, if you're going to make me have those images in my mind, make it worth it. You know, the way to me Cronenberg does and almost every Cronenberg right. movie, I feel like, yes, I went to a really dark place and felt really bad and saw some really gross things. But as a result, I experienced something or learned something or thought something. And yeah. the, the the Requiem for a Dream type of, you know, feel bad <laughs> doesn't give me enough to be worth remembering those <laughs> images, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I got, yeah, a, absolutely. I got a second, third, actually, the succession vote. Hated that show. And I hated it persistently. And then, you know, after we discussed it off the pilot and maybe a couple of uh, first season episodes, abandoned it right away. I just don't don't want to be I'm kind of around this with the Trumps as invading my consciousness daily. Why would I want this? The Murdochs, like some pseudo Murdoch family thrusting itself into my attention. These people are repellent and investing them with any glamour, you know, like is just, you know, I don't know. I thought the excuse of it, this is a satire and we're showing you this monstrosity up close. Like, I, I didn't buy that um, alibi. And then we revisited it, I guess, towards the end of whatever season it was. And I kind of sped, uh, binged on it, right? Like, kind of caught up, sped, caught up, binged on it. And then began to see it as, like, one of the great epic stories of our time with this tragic, like, would-be human being, Kendall, kind of moving towards the heart of it in some way. I mean, they all have something that maybe they're trying to preserve about their own humanity in varying degrees. But, like, in the end, they can't. They're just too seduced. And, you know, I just thought that episode of his birthday party was Dante-esque, right? Like... Like every now and then there's a poetic value to a depiction of contemporary reality as a kind of living hell. And that was as convincing as a TV show for me has ever come to being like the Inferno, right? You're like, this is what it is to live in hell. And, um, and it was funny and very sharp, I thought. <laughs> I mean, it was over the top, right? It, it, it's it's yeah. like there is a su- weird precision and subtlety to that show, which is otherwise like just slapping paint with the broadest brush on the canvas at moments. But um, yeah, I fell for it. I'm in. Yeah, the whole thing feels very Shakespearean to me yes. in a way that's that's very deep and human, but in a way that's also theatrical. Um, and I think that that being able to to play 
to occupy both of those spaces, I think, mm-hmm. is really important and really fun. Yeah, the tragedy of the Kendall story and his father, yeah. and then the comedy of like the Tom and Greg, like Laurel yeah. and Hardy world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the thing that bothered me for a long time about Succession is that everyone spoke the same. You mm-hmm. know, that it was a world yeah. where right. everybody spoke the same, but that right. is part of, of course, the theatrical stylization of the show. Okay, I haven't offered any of my own original ones yet. I've just riffed off of y'all's. But I thought of two, and they both come from the world of kid watching. And I think this is a a place where if you have kids or you're around kids, it's great to pay attention to what they're watching because you might discover gems in there that at first seemed annoying to you, right? Because whenever your kid is binging on a show, it's kind of de facto annoying, (laughs) right? Because it's (laughs) droning in the background constantly, and they're pestering you to watch it. But I'm thinking of two different series that I used to sort of walk through the room while my kid was watching them on her iPad and think, that is getting on my nerves. Then as soon as I sat down with her and started watching them, I loved them and I loved watching them with her. And they are, and I know you love one of them too, Steve, My Little Pony, the the good version of My Little Pony of the Mm -hmm. mid-2000s that has this deep mythology and the characters have different avatars. And I mean, it's it's wild. I don't even know all the full, you know, there's so much of it that I have not fully experienced it. But 100% behind My Little Pony, and I still like categorizing with my daughter, who's now 16, which pony from the show various people are that we meet. (laughs) Like, she's such a Twilight Sparkle, OMG. (laughs) So My Little Pony was one, and the other is one that I've written about on Slate. I eulogized it when it ended. I think I've talked about it on the show, and that's Phineas and Ferb, the great cartoon of the mid-2000s, which, you know, once I start, I still remember what joke it was that drew me in when I was walking by, she was watching it, and just thinking, that is really freaking funny. And the next thing I knew, she and I were just going on deep dives through Phineas and Ferbland, which, again, because the show was so prolific, and, you know, there were... I don't know, season upon season of it, there's still Mm -hmm. a bunch out there that I haven't watched. And I look forward with pleasure to just happening upon more in the future. But I'm sure there are many other great kid things she experienced that I never let get past the wall of the annoying noise, you know, and I I probably should have. Yeah. Yeah, I think Phineas and Ferb is as sharp as Rick and Morty, just for kids and not for adults. And it gets a very bad rep generally, but I loved Phineas and Ferb. It's such a smart show. Wait, why does it get a bad rep? I mean, I think it's just like, you know, that kid's show, whereas the world sort of welcomes Rick and Morty and all these sort of adult uh, animation TV shows into their arms. But it's adults should really go back and watch Phineas and Ferb. I feel like those those two kids, you know, they grapple with a lot. They do. They do some really cool stuff. Oh, my God. And the songs alone. There was an original song, at least one in every episode. And the songs on their own just stand as, you know, great soundtrack listening. I'm curious, like, do you guys have a reversal, a reverse of this, right? The flip side of, you know, you liked it, maybe even had, you know, swoony enthusiasm for it. And then over time, it began to grate. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. isn't that just the process all, of growing of up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah can, I mean, you, can you give me one of those, Nadira? Yeah, for sure. I can give you, I have a whole list of those, some of them sort of in the moment immediate and some of them, as you just said, as I've grown up. I think for me, one of the biggest ones was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm. I, when I first saw that film, I think I was a young teen. And now I find I find the character of Clementine so annoying. That like Manny Picks, Manic Pixie Dream Girl character. Yes. So annoying. Oh, God. Yeah. That it's just like, I, break up with her as soon as it's done. <laughs> I'm sorry. She was not worth all of the mind tomfoolery. She, she, she really <laughs> wasn't. And it really sticks in my craw how much that show really tried to, or excuse me, how much that film really tried to like pass her off as this. Yeah ideal partner and ideal 
girl and how she's so like full of wonder and great and i just find her so annoying yeah. oh, but God. i think of uh, a more tame version of that is glee when i mm. when i was a teen i really really loved glee unironically and now i love glee just ironically because <laughs> <laughs> i think it's it's, it's it's worthy of you know sort of the ironic sardonic treatment but it's it's really it, it has it's very not great moments that's for sure Oh, Nadir, I have only the happiest memories of Eternal Sunshine. And I think I've seen it twice, but both times were very close to the time of its release. But that feels almost like one that I don't want to revisit because I just want to yeah, preserve my nice memories of it. And I do still Please think do. that even if I found that character irritating, I would admire the construction of that screenplay and the visual world that that movie creates. I think a lot about the scene where a room is disappearing. All I remember about yeah. it is like, I think it's a library, right? It's or a bookstore mm-hmm. and books are dis- yeah. disappearing one by one. I just think Gondry's visual imagination and Kaufman's screenwriting just mesh together so well that I love I mean, when they work to- together better than, than when Charlie Kaufman works alone. That's what makes it really disappointing, right? Is that like visually it's stunning. And I think overall the performances are there, but just the, the character of Clementine, like when I remember why it's all happening, I just get irate. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. I was just don't go back, Dana. Preserve it. Preserve it. Keep it. Keep it fresh. Keep it good. I think I probably do that too much. If I have beloved things from the past, I don't necessarily want to go back and, and unearth what kind of person I was when I loved them. <laughs> but that is definitely a phenomenon I've had many a time. Is the feeling of I wish that I hadn't gone back to rediscover that. All right, we could ramble on. That was a great question, Cameron, and thanks for asking it. If any of you have a thought about a Slate Plus question we should answer in the future, please email it to us at culturefest at slate.com. Thanks very much to all of you for being Slate Plus subscribers. We enjoyed the conversation. We'll talk to you again next week.